I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people, All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. Yet you are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. You saved me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. 
For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. I think I'd like you to hold your finger there and turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. I think there are so many verses that we came across in our passage tonight that sound familiar. And we'll read uh, Matthew 27, verses 27 to 54. I want you simply to take note as we read along how many allusions we find at Jesus' crucifixion echo the words of Psalm 22. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27, we'll read down to verse 54. Then the soldiers of the governors took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He has saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he delights in him if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. And the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. I think what we find here in the psalm this evening is a uh, quite a dramatic shift from the exultant tone and victory that we have seen in Psalms 20 uh, and 21. In, in fact, the dissonance is rather jarring. You recall, uh, as we have been making our way through the Psalter in Psalm 20, we had found the what we called the national anthem of the kingdom of heaven. That great exclamation, that shout of exaltation, long live the king. And in Psalm 21, we are told of that everlasting dominion and everlasting eternal life that is granted to the Messiah. And now we make it to Psalm chapter 22. And we find this. I think it's the equivalent of perhaps reading a story that concludes, they lived happily ever after. Only you're left turning the page to find that the hero is in the most dire of straits and in fact dies. I think it's rather significant that these psalms are arranged in a particular set order. As they continue to tell an overarching story of the Messiah and his kingdom. The 19th century Scottish Presbyterian Andrew Bonar And commenting on this psalm says this, he says that in Psalm 20, we saw the warrior. In Psalm 21, we saw the warrior. But now here in Psalm 22, we are brought to the battlefield, and we are shown the battle itself, that battle which virtually ended the conflict with Satan and his allies. Here we consider a deeply critical passage in Holy Scripture, Psalm 22. We can divide this psalm into two halves. First, we'll consider the matter of the cross in verses 1 to 21. And then secondly, we will consider the crown that follows in verses 22 to 31. So the cross and the crown. Well, we see here in the superscript that Uh, it tells us that this is, in fact, a psalm of David. And Calvin himself, in commenting on this psalm, thinks that in the writing of this psalm, David is depicting the sufferings and persecutions that he himself had endured under Saul as he awaited the promise of receiving the kingdom. All right, when you read through First and Second Samuel, you find that there's this uh, uh, notable tension that exists between David uh, when he is promised the throne and that point in time when he finally ascends the throne. Years of battle, conflict, hardship, and humiliation. Though Samuel anoints David as king early on, it is years before he is finally able to take Jerusalem, and that period from his anointing until his accession is a painful one. And here David is speaking, under inspiration of the Spirit, speaking of his own conflict and turmoil and trials that he has undergone uh, as he suffers awaiting the kingship of the Lord. 
I think most jarring what we find, that we find here are these opening vo- uh, verses where the psalmist utters out this, this po- painful cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Hebrew, Eloi, Eloi, lama edzaphani. Or in the Aramaic of Jesus' own day, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. What conflicting emotions we see in these words. On the one hand, we find in these opening verses this, this cry of, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away? In fact, the, uh, this theme of God's distance, his remoteness, is replete in these verse, first 11 verses. You see here in verse 1, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? And then in verse 11, there is that prayer, be not far from me. It's the question of God's seeming distance that forms the bookend to the opening portion of this particular psalm. Uh, And yet we should note that David is not simply crying out in unbelief. This is not the prayer of an atheist. You notice here, on the other hand, though he is saying, where are you, O God? Twice he still says, my God, my God, where are you? Here we find a prayer in the midst of great turmoil and affliction. A prayer that seeks to cling to the promises of God, even in the midst of pain and confusion, great conflict, misery and loss. Even when he feels like he has been abandoned, he still clings to the Lord as his God. Andrew Bonar calls this prayer the irresistible might of weakness. Here the strength of the Messiah is put on full display. Though it seems as if the Lord has abandoned him, the Messiah continues to put his full confidence in the Lord. Calvin notes the tremendous faith found in these opening words, where he says, by first raising up the rampart of faith, he ensures that his emotions do not break beyond due bounds. Again, this is not the prayer of an atheist, rather the prayer of Israel's king seeking a remedy against the temptation that is assailing him and trying to get him to distrust the Lord's goodness that he might let go of all hope and that firm and certain promise of salvation that has been granted to the Lord's Messiah. I think what we see here is a prayer that becomes a model for us in the midst of great trial and affliction. To continue, even when doubts assault and assail, to cling to God the eyes of faith even when our all-sense experience seems to say otherwise, to have the promise of Scripture be our steadfast anchor in the midst of the most turbulent storms. And so here in the midst of great agony, here in the midst of the storm, the psalmist begins to recount the national history of his fathers as he recounts even to his own recollection of the Lord's faithfulness to his forefathers, to his forebears, and their appointed times of woe. You see that here in verses 4 to 7. He says, you have saved our fathers. They cried out to you in the midst of their affliction. You heard, you answered, and guess what? They were not disappointed. Here, 
David, under inspiration of the Spirit, is rehearsing the national history of Israel, of God's own faithfulness. Again, as to give us a model in our own prayers when we undergo those fires of affliction and the seeds of doubt. How is it that you wrestle with doubts? First, you might ask, do you wrestle with them? It's okay to wrestle with doubts. However, we are not simply to let those doubts get the better of us. They are not to lead us to distrust our Father's gracious plan. When doubts arise and affliction assails, consider Israel's own history and God's faithfulness to her, even in the midst of her own infidelity and treachery. Might I commend to you Psalms 104, 105, 106, 107. That's what those national historical psalms have been given for, to speak of the Lord's faithfulness to His covenant, the Lord's faithfulness to His people. And this is exactly what the king of Israel is doing as he feels such, such loss beating down upon him. And yet we see here that even as the Messiah recounts the history of his people, the anointed king of Israel, he looks at his own condition and he sees that his misery is heightened in an unprecedented manner. Now you see that where he says here in verse 6, but I am a worm, I'm not a man. You've been faithful to everyone else prior to me, but my situation is so intense. Will you show yourself faithful here? Will you deliver? Will you save? There is a uniqueness to the sufferings to which the anointed king of Israel is undergoing in the midst of this conflict. Even as he prays, his foes are surrounding him, and they take perverse delight in his suffering. It is voyeuristic, it is sadistic, it is demonic. They are described as these ravenous beasts who are foaming at the mouth, taking great joy in the suffering of Israel's king. In verse 8, they taunt and they jeer. They say, well, he trusts in God. Let him deliver the king. Quite literally in the Hebrew where it says he trusts in God, literally it says he rolls himself onto the Lord. Let the Lord dig him out. What a picture this is of trust. When you feel like you have been kicked in the teeth and knocked down by the circumstances of this life where you lie broken and bleeding in the dust. You are so weak, you are not able to get up. As your foes surround you and they taunt and they mock, we find the only thing he is able to do is he rolls himself into the hands of his loving Father. It's a biblical word for such a kind of trust. And that is faith. And that is what is being described here, the faith of the Messiah and the Lord his God, a faith that knows that God can save, but it is also a faith that knows that God has promised to save. He's not only able to save, he has promised that he would. And not only has he promised to do so, he is a God who keeps his promises He is a God who is willing and able, and here is the Messiah who is lying in the dust broken and bleeding on the brink and verge of death, and yet he continues to entrust himself to his loving Father who does all things well. 
Here the messianic son has fallen into the grave. His foes say, if God truly delights in his anointed one, let him dig him out of the pit. Let him dig him out of the grave. And here we find in verses 9 to 11, in order to fan the flame of faith, the Messiah rolls himself into the arms of his father. As he moves from speaking of God's faithfulness to the nation, he now begins to speak of God's faithfulness to him personally from birth. Yet another thing when we struggle with doubts, to remind ourselves of those times when God has been faithful to us in our own lifetimes. How easy it is when we are in the midst of great trial to think, oh, has God forgotten me? Forgetting the fact that God has delivered us through every trial and every painful circumstance up to this point. And so the psalmist continues to bring to his recollection those hard evidences, those facts that attest to the faithfulness of the maker of heaven and earth. He says here, he says, you have been my God from birth. Even while I was in my mother's womb, even before birth, you have delighted in me from of old. Do not abandon me now. May this not be the point of your departure. You, you see the, the absence of God is felt here in these opening 11 verses. Again, verse 1 God feels so far away. Verse 11, therefore do not be far from me now. Who else is there who is willing to save? Who else is there who is able to save? We see here in verses 12 to 21 that the psalmist now begins to characterize uh, his foes that do surround him. Uh, Again, as I've already mentioned, they're described as carnivorous beasts, lions, bulls, and dogs, oh my. Surrounding and snarling, tearing and roaring, his situation has become so dire and so horrific that he employs three distinct analogies to describe the inner turmoil that is transpiring within his inner life. Like water, he is poured out and utterly expended. Like wax, his heart has melted within him at the sight of his enemies. Like scorched clay, that is what we mean by Potsherd is uh, kind of like earthenware, utterly scorched by the heat. His soul is dried up. His tongue clings to the roof of his mouth. When I read this particular verse, I'm reminded of, uh, I can't remember which of the ones in the Man with No Name trilogy. I think it was the first one. You remember when Clint Eastwood is, is tra- stuck out, he gets stuck out in the desert for days. His face begins to blister. His tongue sticks to the roof of, roof of his mouth. Because of the desert sun, because there is no water, he is on the brink of death. And yet, despite the fact that all of his foes surround him, we ask, who has done such a thing? And when you look at verse 15, ultimately you find the answer is not the enemies of the Messiah who has done this. Look there at the end of verse 15. Who is it that lays him down in the dust of death? He says, it is you, O God, who lays me in the dust of death. This is not said in an accusatory tone. Rather, this is one who has entrusted himself, one who has rolled himself over into the Father's kind providence. 
Here we find language that is echoed later in the words of Isaiah 53, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. That just as the Lord had promised to bring life and dominion and power and blessing and glory to his son, so also has he determined to bring his son through the fires of affliction and death. Confusing as it is in the midst of the struggle, the Messiah recognizes that his misery is part of God's plan of salvation, both for him and for the people. What is your only comfort in life and death? Such begins the first question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has redeemed me from the power of the devil and so cares for me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the gracious will of my heavenly Father. Here the Messiah recognizes that his sufferings come from the hand of God, and he continues to entrust himself to the God who has inflicted these pains. In one sense, we need to recognize that his sufferings are unique. As the anointed king of Israel, he has already highlighted the extreme nature of his sufferings as he compared himself with the sufferings of his forefathers. He says, compared to their sufferings, I am a worm and not a man. His suffering is highlighted, it is exacerbated to the nth degree, yet even in the midst of his incomparable sufferings, he trusts in his Father to do all things well and continues to model for us a picture of faith in the furnace of affliction, even when our sufferings do not compare with his. Jesus suffered far worse on the cross than we ever will in this life or in the life to come. And yet it is because of that that Jesus becomes the source of salvation and strength because he knows what it is like. And there is with him an everlasting uh, well and fount of grace where he supplies us for all that we need in the midst of our suffering and sorrow. Here, the Messianic Son recognizes there is a reason for his suffering, and he submits to it and awaits the salvation with eager expectation. And here in verses 16 to 18, it describes the unique manner of his sufferings. Again, he is very clear these dogs are not literal dogs. Rather, these dogs are uh, uh, evocative metaphors that depict the company of evildoers that surround him. But we need to notice what it is that they do. They pierce his hands and his feet, even as his life is being poured out before he is even dead. His enemies are gambling over who gets his clothes. We have to stop and say, okay, I don't remember that ever happening to David. You read First and Second Samuel, of course, Psalm, uh, this psalm begins by saying this is a psalm of David, as he is recounting his own experiences under Saul, and yet we, we look at these descriptions, and these things never actually happened to David. David here uses poetic language, metaphorical words to speak of his own sufferings, but here under inspiration of the Spirit, he is pointing to the literal sufferings of David's greater son who will come. 
as this psalm frames for us the horrific suffering that the Messiah must undergo. A suffering that he undergoes not merely in a metaphorical sense, not merely in a poetic sense, but quite literally as his hands and feet are pierced and nailed to a cross. Even as the Roman soldiers gamble for who will get his clothes after he dies. David here, in speaking of his own sufferings, is not speaking exclusively of his sufferings. The psalm becomes a schematic, it becomes a sketch of what the sufferings that David's greater son will undergo before he is to ascend the everlasting throne. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus that all the Psalms speak of his humiliation and glory that he must undergo. The foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the things that the scriptures have promised was it not foretold. Moses, the law and the prophets, the sufferings that the Messiah must undergo and the glories to follow. See, the Psalm helps us to see why Christ suffered at the hands of his father. And that even in the midst of his suffering, he continued to entrust himself to his loving father who delighted in him, who was pleased to crush him, as Isaiah tells us, for our sake. And even while entrusting himself to his father's hand, uh, in the words of William Cooper, that behind a frowning providence stands a smiling face. The son looks beyond the cross to the glory that is to come. He prays for deliverance from the sword. And he find, we find here in verses 22 to 31 that his humiliation now gives way to exaltation. The cross now gives way to the crown. Here in verse 22, the Messiah rises as the great psalm singer, the liturgist, and the worship leader of the assembly. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, as he speaks of the Lord's salvation in the midst of the congregation, that Hebrew word there, kahal, the word they're speaking of the assembly or the church, he says, I will praise you. And guess what? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, the author of Hebrews puts these words in the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, as this is the very thing that the Lord himself does. See, Jesus is not only the object of our praise, he is the true worship leader. In a very real sense, the church has only one worship leader, and it is not me. It is not the church pianist. It is not the rock band. It is not the choir. Hebrews chapter 2, in invoking Psalm 22, verse 22, tells us that the Messiah is the great worship leader of the church. He is the great liturgist, the one who leads us into praise to the Father for the supernatural salvation that has come in raising the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Our Savior now calls us. This is one of the things this is why corporate worship is so important. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us this is not simply a random get-together of individual Christians. This is a solemn assembly where we come to hear Christ himself speak presently from heaven through the ministry of the Word. And it's not just the ministry of the Word. It's not just the preaching portion of the service where Christ is leading his sheep. It is also during the worship service itself in the first half as he leads his people into worship of Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Christ himself leads us to praise our great and triune God for having delivered not only us, but the beloved Son of the Father from the grave. As the Father has made Christ the appointed means of our salvation from sin and death. Now that Christ has been raised, he is raised to an indestructible life. Death no longer holds power over him, Hebrews tells us, as does Psalm 110. Now that he holds the power of an indestructible life as our great prophet, priest, and king, he is the one who is granted the source of our salvation. Uh, the one who has opened up that new and living way as he leads us as the greater Moses through this earthly wilderness to the heavenly Canaan. You see here that this humiliating cry at the beginning of the song gives way to a cry of jubilation and the command to the church that we are to stand in awe of the God of resurrection life. And now as we see here in verses 26 to 31, the Messiah, having been delivered from the dead, spreads a feast out for us in the midst of our enemies, a theme that will spill over even into the next psalm, Psalm 23. You look here at verse 26 and again in verse 29, even not just the Messiah, but now the afflicted, those under the weight of deep humiliation, are now able to eat and be satisfied because the Messiah has been delivered from the dead. Israel's king now reigns, and so he becomes the source of life to all who turn to him. As we are now granted the great privilege, the great benefit of life eternal. And with that promise of life, the charge to worship the God of life. This is no ordinary feast. This here attests to the great messianic banquet that so many Old Testament scriptures hint at. The very way in which the Bible itself closes at the end of Revelation. A massive feast that is spread out for the people of God on the last day. Here we find a meal that gives way to eternal life. As verse 26 attests, may they eat and live forever. Here is a feast that is spread for whoever will come, not just for the wealthy and powerful, but you see here in verse 26, it's also for the poor and the afflicted. Here is a feast that is given not just for Israel, but it's also given to the goyim, the Gentiles, the nations. You see that here in verses 27 to 28. It's not simply Israel that will praise Israel's Messiah, but now the whole earth. And it is not just for some generation in a remote, distant past that is made partakers of these benefits. But rather, we see a promised salvation that is offered in perpetuity from generation to generation as every generation tells of the wonderful works of God to the coming generation that the new, the covenant children who rise up will call the Lord blessed and so be made partakers of this same salvation. Here we find a psalm that begins with suffering. And yet it ends in triumph. It ends in celebration with a commemorative meal of the Lord's salvation. A meal of which the nations have been made partakers under the banner of the Lord's Christ. You see, Psalm 22 presents to us a prayer of faith in the midst of fire. Ultimately, this psalm tells us of Christ's faith. As he undergoes the fire of judgment as our representative, as our king, and as David's greater son. Here we have a psalm that speaks of the crown given to Christ, a crown that comes by way of the cross. 
The heavenly throne is Christ's reward for his obedience unto death, as Paul puts it when he writes to the church of Philippi. And as Hebrews tells us, as Christ becomes the great trailblazer of our salvation, he now paves the way and blazes a trail and makes a path that we too are called to tread and follow in his stead, that Christ's own faith becomes a model of faith for us. That in the midst of doubt and confusion, even when God feels so absent, we have a model for us of what it looks like to roll ourselves over and entrust ourselves into the hands of our Heavenly Father. Even in His deepest humiliation on the cross, as a sponge squeezed, Christ oozes the Psalms. They're the very things that gush forth out of His mouth in the midst of His deepest suffering. As He Himself quotes Psalm 22 from the cross, among a number of other Psalms. And yet we find that Christ not only speaks the Psalms in His deep agony, but as the great liturgist and worship leader, it says that in that moment of salvation, in His resurrection and ascension on high, He now tells of the great salvation in the assembly of His brothers. Citing Psalm 22, verse 22, as we find it put under the lips of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. As Christ, now risen and exalted, continues to lead His church in worship and praise as He feeds us with life found in His body and blood. So let us heed the exhortation of our Savior. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. For He has not despised you in your deepest afflictions. But He will feed you with the heavenly manna. He will come and He will save to the uttermost. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that when we read the Old Testament, we find the Spirit of Christ speaking through human authors of the person and work of Christ, that we might have faith to believe that what Christ has accomplished on the cross has, in fact, completed our salvation. For those here struggling with doubts, for those in the midst of great affliction and trial, We pray that you would continue to be their God, that you would not be far from them, that you would not be far from us, that as we roll ourselves into your hands, as we entrust ourselves to you, that you would be kind to us and deliver us for the sake of Christ and for the glory of your name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.